What if in 2024, you got a little bit better every day? When you're learning a new language with Babbel, that's exactly what you're doing. And if Babbel can help you start speaking a new language in just three weeks, imagine what you could do in a full year. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses are helping me learn real-life conversation skills in Spanish. It's getting so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, or speak to merchants. Studies from Yale, Michigan State University, and others continue to prove Babbel is better. One study found that using Babbel for 15 hours is equivalent to a full semester at college. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com SPP. That's right. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. Isn't the point of traveling to get away from it all? To feel the best you've ever felt? Then maybe you should check out Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. When your trip comes to an end, you won't need another vacation because you just had the vacation. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. Chris Stemp here, and thank you, as always, for tuning in on the road, on your walk, on your feet, on your butt, wherever you are, whatever you're doing. We hope to add a little enjoyment and knowledge to your day. You know, I recorded this episode a little while ago, actually, and just getting ready to do the intro and going back and listening and thinking through it. I realized how much I enjoyed this conversation. And so I'm really excited to bring you this upcoming interview with a man that I I really enjoyed getting to know and, and listening to and learning from. And that man is Alan Eney. So Alan, let's first start off with this book because, you know, we have a thing for authors, even though it's not a prerequisite. It's just, by the way, guys, this is a side note. It's just the kind of best way to find thought leaders, learn about what they're saying, what their views are before talking to them because they've put it all out into the world. Of course, there's other people we'd love to talk to, and sometimes we do it. Anyways, that's a side note. So Alan is the author of a book called Thinking in New Boxes. And then this is where it gets interesting. There's two subtitles. So Thinking in New Boxes, Five Essential Steps to Spark the Next Big Idea, A New Paradigm for Business Creativity. 
to talk a little bit about that, and we'll hear from Alan in the episode, but you know, you've heard this phrase, think outside the box. And so initially when I saw thinking in new boxes, I don't know how I felt about it. But the idea here is really that we need boxes of some sort. The human brain isn't really wired to think entirely outside of the box. Get, you know, I mean, we can do it, but is it the most useful? And kind of what Alan talks about is there are frameworks, there are mental modes, theories that can help us come up with strategies and visions that move us forward instead of just get us thinking in the clouds. There's a lot more to it and a lot more to this episode, actually. We spend, yeah, about half talking about that. But Alan's also a really interesting, unique person and extremely accomplished, which is what you know we enjoy having on the show. We, we like learning from the people that have made it and whatever made it means. I mean, we've talked to people who have made it in all different places, all different ways. But this is one that's always interested me because Alan works for the Boston Consulting Group, BCG which if you've ever heard of them, they're like the largest consulting group, most well-respected, always in the best places to work. You make a ton of money, blah, 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 right? And he's a member of the Strategy Practice Leadership Team. He'll talk about how that came to be, what it's like working at BCG, what are the hours, you know? Is my thought, and perhaps yours, exactly what's going on? And how does he work for a company like that, do the things he does, which we'll talk about, and still give speeches, write books, and have time to think, which is really unique sometimes in a corporate setting. So that's all the preview I'm going to give you there. And before we get into the interview, I have one ask of you. One ask. Sign up for our newsletter. It's at smartpeoplepodcast.com, bottom right-hand corner. Now, here's why I say that. We don't send out many emails. I mean, at first, you'll get a few tidbits and things we've learned along the way, but we really don't send out too many because it's my opinion, if it's not great, it doesn't deserve to take up your time. However, as you know, we've recently gone to two episodes a month, and that is because we are looking at some changes to the podcast in all facets, naming, focus, guests, structure, products, books, etc., and I really want to know from you guys what you want, what you think about it. If I throw out an idea, is it good? Is it bad? And that might be in the form of questionnaires. But it's also, I kind of want to talk to some of you guys. I mean, I, I want to just get on the phone and, and connect. I ran into a guy, I do speaking. As many of you know, one of my jobs, <laughs> one of the things I love doing is I consult for the world-class organization, Franklin Covey, and I teach productivity and presentations and all types of leadership, creativity, etc. And I was recently putting on an event, and of course, I ran into somebody who'd listened to the show, and it was so cool connecting with somebody across the country who told me about the experience they have with the show, you know, and, and I hear this a lot, oh, my commute is exactly 40 minutes or 45 minutes, which is typically your show length. This episode really stuck with me. This is what I love. And I realized, you know, sometimes behind this microphone that gets lost on us, us by John and I. And I know some of you probably don't, you don't want a relationship with me in any sense. You just say, give me the content and that kind of sucks, but I get it. But then there's others who, yeah, you want to shape the direction of this. Or you say, look, Chris, you have access to some of these people and this is what I would like. And, and so we want to start getting back to that. 
And I also want to start focusing the podcast. I have some ideas on where I want it to go, perhaps a little less generalized, but I want to see what the audience wants. So long rant here. Sorry about that. But the best way is through email. And again, not only do we not give the email to anyone, it sits in our account at AWeber, but we almost never will. We don't bother you and we're not selling anything. We don't have anything to sell. We've been giving things away for six years. So again, smartpeoplepodcast.com, bottom right-hand corner, you can sign up or there will be a pop-up on the screen. You'll get a few introductory emails and then you'll be able to share your voice and shape the podcast. Thanks so much. Here it is, your episode with Alan Eaney. Alan, I wanted to first say it's been a long time coming. We've been trying to connect for a while, but thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to be on the show. Thanks for having me. I've been looking forward to it also. I'm really excited to talk to you. I know your focus for quite a while has been on creativity, which is a, an incredibly broad subject. And just so I do you justice, let's let's do it this way. Could you just tell us a little bit about what your main focus is or has been? And then we'll talk about kind of how you got there. Absolutely. So I have the rather unique pleasure of a job focused entirely on creativity within one of the world's biggest global consulting firms, the Boston Consulting Group. Uh, some clients and some colleagues have called me BCG's global creativity guy. And what that means is that I work with our clients across industries and around the world on some of the most interesting challenges that they face. So whether it's a, a consumer retailer or a hotel chain or an industrial cable manufacturer, whatever it is, um, we all typically face challenges. How can I do this more creatively? How can I come up with new solutions for that? How can I think about this in fresh ways? And I help my colleagues help their clients in that way. It's a lot of fun. It does. It sounds great. And I'm well aware BCG was one of the things I was like, ah, oh, you know, I want to. I just want to talk to somebody who works there because it's this like omnipotent just beast of a you know think tank in in my opinion what's that actually like well look it's certainly full of smart people we can put it that way yeah. um and that's probably one of the reasons i'm still here after 13 years you know i i joined bcg right after business school thinking i would stay for a year or two um and i've heard other people you know even the ceo who's been here now 27 or 28 say say the same thing nobody really expects to come here forever but it's a great place full of smart people and a culture of problem solving and uh, just a, a really great place for me at this particular moment more than, than ever in the last 13 years. Let me ask you, and for those that don't know BCG, like you said, you're the largest consulting group, kind of the most well-known, uh, typically the, the most revered, I would think. Um, when you first started or ever, I mean, do they work you to the bone? Because when I think consulting, I think, you know, 20 hour days. Look, we, uh, whether we're the second biggest at this stage, it's, it's really an exciting trajectory of growth we've had. Yes, when I started right out of business school, um, I was on the more traditional generalist path. I started with a bunch of others, and I think it was a great way to get a sense of how businesses are run. I was doing it almost as an extension of business school, and how can I work with this cosmetics player and that city and that bank and all of these things and try to help them run things more effectively, uh, better? Um, try to tackle problems more creatively. But yes, I did work hard those first few years especially. I don't think, though, that it's on the same level as what I hear about at investment banks and law firms. Mm. You know, for me personally, my average was somewhere around 55 hours a week, oh. um, maybe 60 
And there were occasionally weeks with more than that and occasionally weeks with less. But it's certainly not in the realm of, of crazy 20-hour days, happily. Well, I'm glad you cleared that up, actually, because, you know, there have been times when I have lost some faith in corporate America because of the quote-unquote 80-hour work week. Uh, but, but 50, 55, maybe 60, I mean, I did that for, I don't know, maybe my first three years out of school. And although long, I was young and it was fine. So that sounds good enough for me. Um, one of the things I wanted to ask, and I, again, I do want to learn a little bit more about you, but these things just come is, as you mentioned, you are constantly looking at some of the hardest problems in the world and we'll get into how you tackle solving them later. But my question is, how do you, how do you look at them in a sense that is of, of wonder, you know, like, Oh, I wonder how I do this. Let's see what we can come up with. Instead of a sense of obligation or worry that I'm being hired, I have to think about this all the time. If I don't figure it out or if I give them the wrong advice, it's, you know, you know, it's, it says things about me and the firm. Like, how do you shift that mindset to one of this is an opportunity? Honestly, that's a great question. And I think for me, it's a question of just being curious and being interested and excited about these things. You know, there was a time in my first couple of years, look, first of all, I was not the most senior person on the BCG team. There are senior partners helping um, make sure that we were delivering useful advice and all the rest of it. And I was the one digging into my particular module, my particular piece of the problem, my piece of the question. But in the end, I knew the most about that particular piece of the question. I knew more than the senior BCGers about that particular topic. And so I would sometimes just be sitting in a room with, you know, CEOs and their direct reports and thinking, my God, how did I possibly get here? This is just an exciting, exciting thing. Mm -hmm. And we were giving logical rational, helpful, intelligent advice. Um, it's not a question of, it's rarely a question, I should say, of, you know, should I invest $3 billion in this thing or not? You know, it's it's very rarely so binary. Instead, it's more a question of how can I improve my marketing to that segment? What should my strategy be for the next five years? How should I, you know, so if you can think about things that way, there's often a portfolio of initiatives, some short-term, some long-term, some big, some small. And to me, that's in many ways what innovation looks like in the modern corporation. There are indeed the moonshots, by all means, the disruptive things, the transformational things, whatever you want to call them. But there's also a lot of smaller things, a lot of more tangible, tactical things. And I think it's that portfolio approach that led us to feel very confident that, you know, part of creativity and innovation, as you know well, is that not every single thing in the portfolio will be a fantastic success. But we still stood behind our advice and we were always proud of it. I love that. Yeah. And I think that, I mean, the 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 core of it you know be curious and dive in and then be kind of confident in what you've uncovered uh it's not always easy but i think it will strike a chord with a lot of people listening how do you become the foremost expert on creativity at one of the most well-respected consulting groups in the world how'd you get here and 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 why well, look, I spent five, six years on the relatively traditional path within BCG, you know, getting promoted and, and getting really close to being promoted to partner. Um, and it was at that stage that I had one of these moments in life when one needs to just step back and think about things. You know, I loved BCG in terms of the people, the culture and all the rest of it. But when I looked at the partner path, you know, the partners are in many ways the ones responsible for growing the business and bringing in the revenue to the firm. 
And I was not sure that I wanted to have that kind of lifestyle of – it's not so much the lifestyle in terms of hours worked. That was, that was you know, as we discussed already. But the lifestyle in terms of every year having this, you know, thou shalt sell X million a year of consulting and, and having your, your compensation, your uh, status within the company depend on that. I wanted to – get deeper into a topic and the topic of creativity had always been super super interesting to me and so what ended up happening there was a point a couple of years even before that life-changing moment when I heard somebody speak who was a 60-something year old eccentric Belgian philosopher called Luc de Brabander um, and if anyone has seen the uh, the book that I've put out which I'm sure we'll get to in a moment but it's called Thinking in New Boxes and it's by myself and Luc and so you know I heard Luc speak and I was really excited by some of what he had to offer um, but as I said he was an eccentric philosopher and you know he had written a lot of books before that frankly did not sell a lot of copies for various reasons and we started doing some things together it was mostly in my spare time at this stage because i was doing traditional bcg projects but we started doing some things together we put out a few short articles that were really well received because suddenly this this marriage of the eccentric philosopher and the practical bcg consultant was one that worked really well and then we wrote a longer piece and it became a 30, 40 page book proposal. And then Random House bought the book proposal. And, you know, long story short, I'm skipping over all of the obstacles that we overcame in the way, uh, on the way for the moment. Um, but long story short, um, we put out this book, Thinking in New Boxes. It was subtitled The New Paradigm for Business Creativity. And it became a fantastic credential for both of us. Um, Luke, since he was in his mid-60s, eventually stepped away a little bit from consulting and so on. And I kind of shifted into this role of BCG's global creativity guy. And that's, you know, the short version of how it happened. And now, as I say, the book is in 11 languages and takes me all over the world. So it was a kind of a gradual thing, but it was rooted in a long interest in creativity, hearing Luke at an event, and the desire to make a change from the traditional BCG path. I really want to talk about the kind of the desire to make that change from traditional paths as many people I think more and more are trying to figure that out before we do that take me back even further I mean did you know like what did it look like in high school for you in college business school the path you were on was it just uh, were you driven by the idea of I'm smart I want to work for smart people and I want a uh, stable career and then just oh look what happened is that how it went or did you kind of have an end in mind or what was your mindset throughout that entire growth process? I don't think it's exactly like that. I think what ended up happening, you know, I am somebody who from very early days, well, look, I'm left-handed. I've always loved math. I've always been into music. A lot of the sort of stereotypical uh, left-hander type of things, you know, math and music and all the rest. Um, and so I'd always been interested in creativity. Um, my first job after McGill undergraduate was running a classical music festival because I'd always loved music, but it was sort of the management of it behind the scenes, putting on the concerts and things like that. So I had always had close ties to the creative world in the sense of being a, an amateur musician, singing in choirs and, and stuff like that. At the same time, I went to business school because I wanted to learn how to run the music festival properly. So when I started at Columbia Business School, if you had asked me what I would be doing in a few years, I probably would have thought I'd be, you know, eventually running the New York Philharmonic or running some sort of orchestra, you know, again, from the arts management type of side. At some point, 
I probably realized a couple of things. One, um, that the head of the New York Philharmonic probably spends, from my perspective, too much of his time uh, fundraising and doing the development work, which is just a fact of the uh, nonprofit world these days. Um, but more than that, I tried BCG at a summer internship, and I just loved the idea of problem solving. So like I said before, I figured I'd try it for a year or two. And frankly, at any point in the last 13 years, um, if you had asked me, oh, how, how much longer do you think you'll stay at BCG? I probably would have said, well, another year or two. You know, it was kind of a rolling year or two throughout because of liking the people and the culture and all the rest of it. So it's one of these things that, that evolved over time, but I think was rooted in a longstanding interest in creativity and music and all of these sorts of things. You know, one of the things you mentioned there, I think people don't, and, and it goes towards what you said about not choosing the the stereotypical path at, at BCG. It's the, and then you said it about leading the Philharmonic is each job or many jobs that you think you want or that seem like the logical step. When we take them, and I'm speaking in generalities, maybe I'm wrong. I would would have taken them because it seemed like the logical thing to do, without considering what is the job actually. What is what do I enjoy? What am I good at? What do I want to do? And then will that job actually provide that? And I thought the example you gave with the head of the Philharmonic was interesting, but also that seemed to be the decision, as you mentioned, in not becoming a partner at BCG. I think you're right. That's an interesting analogy. And, you know, one way I've often looked at it when, you know, when now Columbia people or McGill people ask for my advice or we're in the recruiting process, you know, there's a lot of these people who are very deductive and analytical. And that's understandable in a place like business school or studying math in undergrad the way I did. It's perfectly normal. Um, and so they have these five-year plans. This is where I want to be in my career in five years. This is where I want to be in 10 years and all the rest of it. And I generally, I have to confess, I'm not a big believer in that sort of thing. I mean, by all means, you have to plan. You have to think ahead. I have no, no objection to any of that. But you also have to be uh, open to surprises. You have to be open to these serendipitous things that come along. You have to be willing to change these plans. I think it was Eisenhower or somebody like that who said, you know, planning is essential, but the plans are useless. In other words, the <laughs> process of, of thinking about these things, thinking about the future, thinking about what you want to be, by all means, do that. That's fantastic. But if you have a specific five-year plan, you better be willing to adapt it and change it as you go. Um, anyway, that's my two cents. Well, no, that's great because that was essential the question you just took it and ran with it i was like <laughs> how do you how do you figure that out so i love that quote by the way so planning is essential the plans are useless is that what it something is? like i i <laughs> might be uh, getting it slightly <laughs> off but it's certainly in that vein well if you got it off then i want to see the real quote because that's a pretty good one <laughs> so you know you took this leap you wrote the book it all turned out tell us about you know what it's about what is this whole idea i mean creativity again a conversation or an idea that's happened many times especially on this podcast but i think you again you approach it in a relevant way in a easy to understand but that doesn't make it dumbed down type of way so kind of give me your and give us your uh your general sense of or, or your summation of what it is that you try to get across. Certainly. And, uh, you know, let me try and explain the point and the theory, but then maybe we can go into a couple of examples if, if that's a yeah, useful Yeah, that'd direction. be great. I think the main point is fundamentally this. You know, for decades we have been told, think outside the box. You know, and there's this 
thinking in the corporate world that if you bring some smart people together with some flip charts and some snacks and put them in a room, you say, all right, everybody, off we go. One, two, three, think outside the box, right? Um, and usually it doesn't work. People are terrifically frustrated with that experience. Everybody's been there many times, but most people are not happy with the results that come out of these sessions. And so we wanted to tackle why. We wanted to understand why and offer an alternative. And it's actually quite simple. Um, we are all human beings. We all think using mental models. And that's what we call boxes. A box is a mental model. And we all have these boxes that we use all the time. This is how we think about our customers. This is how we think about life. This is how we think about our competition. This is the way we do things around here. Uh, this is how everyone in the industry does it. You know. And if you can actually take the time to understand your existing boxes first before you actually jump into the brainstorm – and then think which of these existing boxes are ready for a change. That to me is the process of finding new boxes. And so basically, if you take the time before just jumping into a brainstorm to think carefully about what sort of problem are we tackling, what are some ways of reframing the question, what are the existing boxes or assumptions or constraints that are holding me in place, and which of them might be ready for a change, then you can actually find some really useful new boxes for the situation you're trying to address. Shall I, shall I give you an example? I do want an example, but I got to ask you a question first. And, and maybe it's just me that's thinking this, but you know, discussing creativity in terms of boxes seems like a very consulting type of thing to do, you know? And so I'm wondering when you were, when you were coming up with all this, I mean, you know, think outside the box. I don't know how long that's been around. And yours is thinking in new boxes. So clearly there's a difference, but there's obviously a tie. Did you think, oh, this may seem cliche? Or did you think, look, we're starting with an idea that had has obviously resonated and we're modifying it slightly? Yeah, I actually, look, I do think thinking outside the box is cliche. And it's been around now 50, 55, 60 years almost uh, since Osborne put it out there. Um, but in the end, I think, look, I'll confess that in the last three years since my book came out, thinking in new boxes may not have changed the vernacular in corporate America right. and the corporate world, which is a shame from my perspective. But I will say that I think people are still frustrated with the thinking outside the box approach. People are frustrated with the usual approach to a brainstorm. And at the same time, I would say that creativity is more important than ever because the world is changing so much more quickly than ever before. And there's more uncertainty and volatility and all the rest of it, which just means in some ways, you know, the lifespan of a good idea is shorter than ever. So if creativity is more important and everybody's frustrated with the traditional approach, there was definitely something new that was needed, right? And the way we tried to think about it um, – is how can we take this box approach? Well, if a box is a mental model and then somebody tells you to think outside the box, basically they're telling you your existing boxes are no good. Your existing ways of thinking are no good, which is like saying don't drive on the highway. But it's not telling you if you should take the side roads or take a helicopter or use a video conference or just do something else instead. And so the whole idea of thinking in new boxes was let's try and find some useful new assumptions because we can never be without boxes completely. Um, we're human beings. We think using mental models. So let's understand the way we think so that we can think creatively. It makes a lot of sense. And I mean, I, I have to admit, after I haven't read your book, but I read a lot on it. I watched your TED Talk. I, I kind of, you know, I understand it a little bit. The way you go about it, again, is different. It did help me shift 
my thought process, which is why. But I had to ask that because it's like, you know, we have a consultant on the show. He's talking about boxes. You know what I mean? I'm sure you get that quite, quite often. Right. Oh, yes, quite right. <laughs> Not lost on me. So let's let's go into some of these case studies. I mean, it, it show us what it means to think in new boxes. So I'll give you a couple of simple examples then, and then maybe some that I've been involved in too. Yeah. But, you know, look, fundamentally, one that everyone will understand is low-cost airlines. You know, today, the moment I say the word low-cost airline, your mind jumps to a certain image. And whether it's Southwest in the U.S. or Ryanair and EasyJet in Europe or Indigo in India, whatever, now they're all over the world. But the first one, you know, was Southwest several decades ago. How did they actually get this thing up and running? My claim, and of course this is oversimplified, but my claim is they had to start by understanding the existing assumptions in the mind of everyone in the airline industry and then think which of those are ready for a change. And so, you know, everyone in the airline industry would have said, we need many types of planes to serve different destinations and markets, whatever. And they said, no, we're going to have one type of plane. That is a fundamental shift in a box, in a mental model. Everyone in the airline industry would have said, we use travel agents. Well, we're not going to use travel agents. Again, that was heresy. It was a big shift in an assumption. Um, we have assigned seats. We're not going to have assigned seats. We have all-inclusive pricing. We're going to have unbundled pricing and charge for extras. We have a hub-and-spoke system. We're going to have a point-to-point -point network instead. Um, we consider safety our number one top priority. Well, we could keep that one, right? So, <laughs> I was wondering know, where you were going with that. I was like, exactly, wait, wait, what do I not know about Southwest? <laughs> exactly, exactly. So it's a question of which of our existing boxes are really, really set in stone, like this safety one, and which might be ready for a change, like this uh, travel agent question and so on and so forth. And so sometimes I sit with my clients and say, look, just take five, ten minutes, right? It doesn't have to be an all-day exercise. Take ten minutes with a blank sheet of paper and no laptop or an iPad if you prefer, if you that's where you write your notes. Um, five, ten minutes, just think about that airline example, shifting from this to that, from this to that, some fundamental changes in assumptions. Now, how could that apply to your problem? Whatever the particular creative problem is that you're trying to solve now, whether it's needing new ideas for your business or whether it's having trouble getting along with this person or just a midlife crisis or whatever challenge it is that you're trying to solve, think about those shifts in mental models. What are some of the assumptions you're currently holding and how might they change? Just list some simple from two shifts in the spirit of, of open-mindedness and divergence without shooting things down yet um, and just put a lot of things on the table and you know you'll already open the door to a lot of possibilities just in a few minutes by identifying and challenging some of your existing boxes forgive me if this is a stupid question but how might that differ from somebody an executive that's been in business school or who's read books other than yours coming in and saying hey guys we have to think about things differently like we have to think outside the box essentially um, what? Because I know there's a structure here. It's kind of a leading question, but what is that difference? Yeah, look, if you were trying to start a low-cost airline 50 years ago before Southwest and you suddenly said, all right, everybody, off we go, think outside the box, but you didn't take the time to think which of your existing assumptions are ready to change, you know, you would have come up with all sorts of wild and crazy things like, um, I don't know, let's have, have teleportation and let's, um, let's just have these, who needs airports, let's just land on highways. And, you know, that's fine. I'm all in favor of these wild, crazy ideas popping up at some point. But in the end, if you're not thoughtful about the question you're asking and the ways you try to solve it, you're liable to end up with too much like that 
or just too much that's really too close to the status quo and nothing that's actually usable, nothing that's actually practical. And if you ask your question in a really thoughtful way, then um, then you're liable to get much more useful answers. And so it kind of makes your brainstorm harder to actually try and understand your existing boxes first. You can't just jump in and say, all right, off we go, think outside the box. But the probability of getting something useful out of it is much, much higher. Let me give you another example, uh, airline-related, just based on a simple question. There was there was an airport in the uh, well in the U.S. somewhere, a small, medium-sized airport, so not one of the huge ones, and there were huge numbers of passenger complaints about the time it was taking bags to arrive at the baggage carousel. Now, obviously, you and I uh, we try not to check bags whenever we travel, of right. course. But, you know, often when, you know, if I'm with my daughter or whatever else, okay, we check bags sometimes. And they went through a lot of things. They improved their, you know, they looked at the process flow. They looked at how long it was taking the banks to get from here to there to everywhere. And, you know, ultimately they shaved it down from about 15 to 10 minutes. And this was really an impressive improvement. 30, 33% improvement, fantastic. Now they're better than average instead of way worse than average. But customer complaints did not go down at all customer complaints stayed exactly the same. So they looked at it a little bit more closely and they realized that at their airport, um, it was a question of, you know, they had a super short walk from the plane to the baggage carousel and other airports of similar size had a bit of a longer walk. And so the wait for the bags felt longer at their airport. So now what can they do about it? Well, they could have free Wi-Fi or shopping or kids entertainment or, you know, something to make the time pass more quickly. Or they could um, put up a sign saying, hey, did you know we've had a big improvement or how many minutes till your bags arrive, a countdown clock. But in the end, they realized that all they had to do, and this is a really annoying solution from my perspective. I think I know where you're going. Yeah, exactly. They installed extra walls in the airport. so that everybody would have a longer walk to get to the baggage claim, even those like you and I who don't check bags. Right. So basically they made the whole system less efficient and customer complaints dropped to zero. It's, it solved the problem. And so the, the point I'm making is that for whatever creative challenge you're trying to solve, it's worth starting with an understanding of the question because if you're trying to minimize the number of minutes till the bags arrive, that is a legitimate question. That's fine. But if you're trying to minimize customer complaints, that's a completely different question. They're both legitimate. But to take the time to think really clearly and not just say think outside the box, but think really clearly about which question you're trying to answer and what you're trying to solve for. And then what are some of the existing ways of thinking about that problem and which of those are set in stone and which of those might really be ready for a change. That is more effort than the typical process, but it's worth it from a payoff perspective. Man, that is an interesting one, especially given how much I fly. I just thinking <laughs> about that. Uh, but you know, one. All right, let me ask you this, and this may be slightly off topic, but I uh, I was dealing with our our cable provider, right? And mm-hmm. cable and internet provider, and they're they're terrible. But where I live, there's two options, and both of them are terrible. And so I, maybe in preparation for this interview, I don't know, I started getting these crazy ideas, these thoughts, right? I'm like, you know, if you started a, uh, a, a cable and internet company in my area or probably in any area and everything was done online. So you go on, you pick all the channels you want to order exactly what you want. And there is a standard price. It doesn't change. There's no deals. This is what it is. And you know, you're getting the same as your neighbor. So you cut out all of the negotiating that happens. And 
you cut out all of these these people that you don't need, and instead you put it all into customer service and and tech support essentially. And so it's same day service. It's you know it's all that. I feel like you could charge more and still crush it. But then I wondered, or then I got caught up on the fact that I could never do this. So so really, my question here is. Uh, given all you know and and the the companies you've consulted with, you know, even if you think in new boxes, you are constrained by your resources to some degree. Would you have any advice for those that still that that have these ideas and want to somehow figure out a way to move them forward? I think that's really interesting because you're right. Look, in many ways, my typical client might be your cable company. Right. Rather than some young startup-y guy who, who just has this wild idea that he wants to kick off, right? Right. Um, but at the same time, I also can't help but think about this thing. You know, your, your the, the, the scenario you described is one scenario. What about a world where, you know, you just pay every time you want to watch something? So, you know, an episode of this sitcom is five cents and uh, to watch the nightly news is three cents and whatever. And, and then it just gets added up at the end of the month. Or what about a model where you're shattering some of the other constraints? Like why should, why should it be tied to your phone bill? Or if, in fact, if it is tied to your phone bill, why not offer mobile phone service as well? I mean, there, there's a lot of ways you can think about challenging the business model and changing the status quo. Um, and that, to me, by the way, is the biggest difference between um, creativity and innovation, really. I know there's a lot of definitions of these words, but for me, the biggest definition is actually really simple. Creativity is the idea, the spark, the possibility. And we've just listed two or three uh, sparks for how one could theoretically reinvent the cable industry. Right. Um, innovation is making it happen. Innovation is uh, putting the idea into practice. And this is where, you know, you have to think about the people and the business model and the pricing and the, the, the costs and all of the, all of the realities of making this stuff happen. And by the way, there are some fundamental, um, differences between the two, but chief among them is that you can be a really successful business with one and without the other. I mean, so so creativity you could define as inventing things and coming up with new things and you can have this famous chef who's coming up with these new combinations all the time. But then innovation is really monetizing it and turning it into cash and, and making it work. You could even argue that Apple, for example, for all of their brilliance, um, you know, they didn't actually invent the the telephone or the laptop or the uh, the tablet computer or the mouse even originally or, or any of these things, right? Um, it's more a question of they are brilliant at the innovation side of things. They're right. brilliant at turning this into and, – and you could argue a little bit because, of course, they did sort of reinvent all of those things. But still – um, I think you could have creativity without innovation in the form of somebody having a great idea that goes nowhere. Mm -hmm. uh, and you could have innovation without creativity in the form of somebody just copying, you know, well, look, those guys decided to open on Sunday. I guess I'll open on Sunday as well. That, in a sense, is innovation for your business, but it's obviously not creative. So it's a question of understanding the difference between the two. And at the moment, as far as the cable industry goes, <laughs> you are creative and you're not yet innovative. Yes. No, and actually, it's a really good it's a really good way of putting it. I, I do some consulting for Franklin Covey, and we I, I work on the productivity side, but I, I've heard a lot of the people talk about execution, and that they talk about basically innovation as execution, and they always kind of explain how it's it's easier to 
come up with new ideas than it is to innovate and, and act on them, really execute on them. And I think that is often the case. But what you're saying is the companies that can do both are the ones that really uh, change the game and move things forward and become and can become more successful. And, and also, I think, you know, most people who are interested in this, even if you're an entrepreneur, you can think about things differently. If you're in a business division, you can do it. So it really uh, works on most most groups, if you will. You know what I mean? You've got it. It's exactly that. It's this question, which I didn't quite get to, but you saw where I was going, that, that being able to do both is what makes a company successful in this day and age. And it's really funny because people have this conception, you know, that the next big thing has got to come from the likes of, you know, Zuckerberg in the dorm room or Hewlett and Packard in the garage. And, you know, of course, that's true in those two cases and in others, but it doesn't have to be because if there is a big company that's really able to rethink the status quo and disrupt their own business and, and challenge things so much the better. But even more than that, it's not always necessary. You know, in some ways, the first iPhone was totally disruptive and all the rest of it. And you could argue the second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth might be, you know, less so, but they still made a ton of money off the second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth. So, you know, the disruptive transformational ideas are always welcome, but you can move, you can make a lot of progress. You can do a lot with the more incremental changes as well. We only have a few more minutes, but I want to know, you know, in your book, you really kind of break creativity down into five steps. And I, I think it's really interesting. It's essentially the process here. Of course, you know, there's a lot of information and there's a lot of really useful ways to go about it. But would you be able to, you know, in the next five minutes, kind of explain to us in a skeleton what these steps are and how people might be able to start utilizing them? Yeah, absolutely. Look, I mean, because this is a book about creativity uh, published by Random House and, you know, the Boston Consulting Group, this is why you have to have a five-step process in there, right? So, <laughs> and that's fine. But um, I'm going to dwell particularly on the first one, Perfect. which won't be a surprise because I think, you know, if the five steps are doubt and then explore, and then diverge and converge, and then reevaluate. Look, diverge and converge, the third and fourth steps are really the classic brainstorm. The, the idea of getting a lot of ideas on the table without judgment, and then converging and prioritizing among them. Now, the main difference here is that those are third and fourth. As I say, they're not what you have to do first. What you have to do first, which is related to what we've been discussing, is take the time to doubt. Take the time to, as I said, understand and challenge some of your existing mental models, your existing boxes. Doubt that what you think you know is in fact the case, and maybe it's time to make a change. So we can doubt that the problems that we're solving are indeed framed the right way. We can doubt that, you know, the way we've always done things is the way it should always be done, that the way we're looking at our customers is the only way to do. So if you actually take the time to doubt before you get to the diverge and converge, so much the better. The probability of success will be much, much higher. And then the second step is about exploring the world in front of you. And the key point here is, again, you know, before you jump into the creative process, take the time to gather the facts. And this might be customer research or competitive intelligence or trends of what's happening in business. Okay, you gather all that stuff. We know how to do that. The only trick, again, is to do so while maintaining this attitude of doubt, to look at it with fresh eyes. Because, you know, you can fundamentally look at facts in multiple different correct ways. And it's just a question of how you actually interpret. I give you an example again, um, Barnes and Noble versus Borders, 
right? So 15 years ago, those were the two biggest bookstore chains in the U.S. Um, They were both respected and they were both facing the same facts in the world in front of them. You know, they had the advent of Amazon. They had the first iPod beginning to put digital music out there. But just because they're faced with the same facts, you know, they looked at them in completely different ways. They interpreted the world in different ways. Barnes & Noble decided to double down on CDs in its store because it thought the quality of digital music was no good, which was true at the beginning, but obviously it got much better. Um, Whereas Barnes & Noble instead opted to focus on the uh, the Nook and developing the Nook as a competitor to the Kindle. Borders decided to outsource its online sales to Amazon, and the logic was, well, look, it's not our strength. It's not our core competency. Those guys are really good at that. Um, obviously, Barnes & Noble invested a lot in its own bn.com type of site. And Barnes & Noble is not out of the woods yet, but they're still alive. And uh, it's more than can be said for borders. So it's a question of taking the facts, looking at them with fresh eyes at the same time as you doubt your existing boxes and mental models, and then and only then jumping into the divergence and convergence of the classic brainstorm. And then the fifth step is this idea of reevaluating, of always being willing to reevaluate, to go back to the beginning, really, to recognize that no good idea will last forever. And it should make sense, again, because if the world is constantly changing and our boxes, our mental models are fixed, then by definition, no good idea is going to last forever. Whether it's, you know, the iPhone or the Model T Ford or or penicillin or Coke secret formula, you know, Hmm. nothing will last forever. We have to be willing to reevaluate and go back to the beginning and doubt again. It's only a question of when. So that's that's it in a nutshell, the idea of doubting, exploring, and then diverging and converging and always being willing to reevaluate. That's the five steps of thinking in new boxes. You know, it's so clearly obvious that this is something you do for a living and really love. I mean, you know, it was concise. It was, you know, it, it definitely gave us a great explanation. Uh, I think people are now going, okay, wait, are you going to end the episode? Because I want some more. And unfortunately, we do have to, but... Uh, you know, again, the book is Thinking in New Boxes, um, A New Paradigm for Business Creativity. There's also another subtitle there, which is Five Essential Step, Five Essential Steps to Spark the Next Big Idea. I don't know if I've seen a book that seemingly has two subtitles, by the way. Congratulations on being, on being creati- <laughs> creative there. <laughs> it's pretty funny. But Alan, um, for those that are listening, I mean, obviously we will link to the book, but is there anywhere else that people can find you? Are you, you know, do you, you got a website, you do social, you know, anything like that? You write on blogs or are you just head down helping out companies these days? No, uh, look, it's keeping me busy wandering the world, but I am on Twitter. People can look at hashtag new boxes or at Alan Eney, uh, Alan underscore I-N-Y. Um, that's me. Always happy to receive emails via LinkedIn or uh, the email address is on, in the book as well. So um, don't hesitate to track me down. It shouldn't be that difficult. Yeah, well, Alan, this was fantastic. Thank you again. I know you got a busy day. You're probably, are you at BCG? Are you in the office these days? I am in my office this week happily, and I'm beginning to put some thinking down on paper for what might one day become a second book. Oh, uh, you boy. Know, they, last wait, they, week, they, they in Singapore, and next week, Korea. So there we are. They let you sit in work and get paid to think about what book you're going to write? Uh, whenever <laughs> I can find the time, it's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, man, that sounds great. All right, Alan, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Lovely talking with you. Thanks again for having me. All right, no problem. Have a great day. And you. Bye-bye. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Alan Eaney. 
His book, Thinking in New Boxes, A New Paradigm for Business Creativity, can be found on Amazon or at your local bookstore. If you're going to purchase the book through Amazon, please do not forget to use the smartpeoplepodcast.com Amazon banner located at smartpeoplepodcast.com slash Amazon. Any purchase you make through our Amazon link comes at no cost to you, but gives us a nice little kickback from Amazon, helps keep the lights on, and keeps the show moving forward. If you'd like another free and easy way to support the show, please head over to iTunes, leave a rating, review, comment over there. It only takes a minute or two, and we're greatly appreciative when folks do so. If you'd like to reach out to the show, you can email us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or shoot us a message on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. That's it for the show this week. As always, please make sure you head over to smartpeoplepodcast.com to keep up with all things Smart People Podcast and to sign up for our free newsletter. Okay, that's it for me this week. Thank you so much for listening, and we will see you all next episode.